this week of what it was because we don't want to forget about it or, or let go of it. Um, so we were looking at what the early church was like and the fact that they were a lot like Jesus. And we saw six things that were, were qualities of that church. We saw, first of all, apostolic leadership. We're going to be looking a little bit more at that today. Then we saw that they were a tight-knit community, that they were a spiritual family, that there was warmth, there was supportiveness, and sacrifice for one another among them. So tight-knit leadership. Then we saw that they were both attractive and repellent. We saw that they were attractive in that they were vibrant and, and they were supporting and sacrificing for one another. And also, also because of the power that there was through the Holy Spirit among them, that people were being healed, uh, that they were being delivered and set free, that they were being transformed. So they were attractive, but on the other hand, they were repellent because... Uh, they were considered dangerous. They were considered a cult by the established religious leadership. And also because there was this story going around about Ananias and Sapphira and that uh, when they came in uh, hypocritically, uh, faking it, making themselves out to be something that they weren't, that God actually struck them down. And so there was a fear about what was going on among these people, attractive and repellent. Then we saw that they were missional through words and deed, through both showing through their lives and telling the good news they were witnessing to the fact that Jesus was alive. They were honored to be ashamed. They were honored by Jesus, and that was all that mattered to them, so much so that they considered it joy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And then lastly, these amazing miracles were happening among them. We saw Peter doing the things Jesus had done, and it, it was a reminder of that time where Jesus had said that anyone who believes in him would do the same works Jesus had been doing and even greater works than those. And we saw that happening through Peter in particular. Well, today we're going to see more about this church. We're going to see more of, of who they are as Luke lets us in on them and paints a picture of who they were. So we're looking at Acts chapter 6. That's on page 776 in most of the Bibles in the seats. And we're looking at verses 1 to 7 of Acts 6 this morning. You know, there's a, an urban legend that I'm sure many of you have heard about the two Chinese characters which make up the word crisis in Chinese. And that one of the characters means danger and the other word means opportunity. Now, etymologically, a lot of etymologists kind of roll their eyes and say, well, it's not quite that simple. But, but there is truth in the illustration, right? That crises and problems and troubles have the potential for danger to, to derail and to destroy. But they also can be springboards of opportunity to growth and to new possibilities. And we see this happening in today's passage. Today's passage begins with a big problem, with strife, with complaining in the community, with accusations against the leadership of favoritism and unfairness. But look how our passage today ends in verse 7. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's a pretty good ending, given how the passage begins. <laughs> and it's an ending not only for this passage, but actually for all that we've seen in the book of Acts so far. 
Because you see, the book of Acts is organized into six sections. Six panels, they're sometimes called, by the experts who need special words for everything they do. So six sections, six panels, and each section or panel ends with a summary statement similar to the one we find at the end of today's passage. The word of God spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly, etc. So before we get into today's passage, let's step back as we finish this first panel and let's notice where we're at in the overall story of the book of Acts. Remember, the overall structure of Acts is given right in chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read it again. Jesus tells his followers, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, first, and then in all Judea and Samaria, second, and then to the ends of the earth. And today, as we finish up this first section of Acts, we finish up the part of the story where Jesus' followers witness to Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem only gets one panel. And in today's passage, the, the problem that the believers face actually lays the groundwork for the breakthrough and the advance we're going to see in the next section of Acts, chapter 6 to 9, as the believers take the message of Jesus to the next frontier, to Jerusalem and to Samaria. So here's the bigger message of the book of Acts. Jesus' Jesus' mission is going forth. Jesus' kingdom is expanding and nothing is going to stop it. Verse 7, again, ending, summing up the first section of the book. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts, we've already seen Jesus' kingdom overcome the threats and oppositions of religious leaders, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, the persecutions and imprisonments and beatings of the leaders of this community, and in today's story, even the faults and failures of God's people. Over every obstacle, God's word prevails, and Jesus continues to build his new kingdom. In today's story, we see the kind of leadership that can turn a problem, a crisis, which could derail the growth and momentum of the community, and it turns it into an open door to springboard that growth into new frontiers. So we begin with a problem. And Luke gives us another very honest look at the failings and the shortcomings of the early Christians. He shows uh, what they struggled with and and how their leaders helped them to work through and overcome these struggles. Before we dig into this problem and, and how it gets solved, let's notice what Luke tells us about this community, which is background and which are the ingredients out of which this problem comes. So first, Luke tells us right in the first verse that This community is growing rapidly, that Jesus is at work among his people. He's bringing people to himself. They're experiencing rapid growth. And in part, they're growing because their leaders are are not just pastoral type people who, who teach and care for those who are already committed, but rather their leaders are apostolic. They are outreach focused. They are missional leaders. The the apostles and later some of the seven that we're going to meet today, they're going out and they're sharing the good news with those who don't yet believe. And as we've seen before, 
that's um, something for us to think about in the kind of leaders that we select as a church and what we expect of those leaders. We should be looking for leaders who are missional if we are called on a mission. But there's a downside to missional leaders, let's be really honest, especially if a church is growing. Sometimes these kind of leaders can overlook some of the needs within the community. Sometimes when things are growing and leaders are getting stretched and they can't cover all the needs, this can happen and we see it happen in this story. We'll look at that more later. But, but second, let's notice in terms of ingredients for this problem that this community is diverse. That they're composed of Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Now to understand who these two groups are, we've got to know a bit about the culture of that time. The Middle East in the time of Acts was under incredible pressure to adopt Greek customs and ways. This was the political correctness of that day. Ever since Alexander the Great had had conquered most of the known world around 300 BC, Greek language and Greek culture and Greek philosophy had been the in thing, the sophisticated thing. This continued during the Roman Empire as the Romans adopted much of Greek thought and culture. And so in the first century, the only way to get ahead in the culture, in the economy, in society was to speak Greek and to get a Greek education so you could think Greek and act Greek. And if you weren't Greek, you were out of it. You were old-fashioned. You were barbaric. They had a word for it, barbarians. That's where that word comes from. And the Jews, in the midst of the Roman Empire, as they were, actually felt this pressure acutely. Everyone did. Now, many Jews felt that there was much about Greek culture that they could adopt and still be faithful Jews. But there were other Jews who felt that to allow yourself to be influenced by the Greeks was to be unfaithful to God and to the Jewish faith. Does that sound familiar? The the way we tackle cultural challenges today? It's a human nature. So the first group of Jews, the Hellenists, they tended to speak Greek. Many of them lived outside of Judea in other parts of the Roman Empire, surrounded by the Roman culture, the Greek culture. The second group, the Hebraic Jews, tended to speak Aramaic and or Hebrew and to live in Judea, close to Jerusalem, close to what had been their ancestral homeland. And so there was tension between the more cosmopolitan Hellenists and the Hebraics who held more closely to the old ways. And these two groups often didn't even attend the same synagogues. The Hellenists, Jews, well, they spoke Greek, so they had their Greek-speaking synagogues and their Greek translation of the Bible that they used. While the Hebraic Jews continued to worship in the ancient languages of Hebrew and, when necessary, Aramaic. Now, when when the Jews came to believe in Jesus, those differences didn't evaporate. Rather, people just brought them with them into the church, much like we bring our political views and those tensions into church with us today. And and it seems like in Acts, when when the believers um, largely met in homes, that the Hellenistic followers of Jesus may have met in one set of homes, And the Hebraic followers of Jesus may have met in another set of homes with some overlap and some common fellowship between the two broader groups in the temple and other opportunities when they got together. But this is a recipe for some potential problems, right? 
Well, third piece of background here. This church is suffering from the same social and economic problems as the broader society. In that day, there was a belief among Jews that it was best to die in Jerusalem. So that you'd be in the right place when the Messiah came to that city and raised the dead. And so many of the Jews who could afford to, from all over the Roman Empire, many of whom would be Hellenistic Jews, would move to Jerusalem when they retired at the end of their life. It was kind of the Florida of uh, the ancient world, at least for the Jews. And, And often, the husbands would die first, leaving their widows as a burden on the city. They didn't have 401k plans back then. And so it's likely that, that this early Jewish church was struggling with a large number of Hellenistic widows to care for. Fourth ingredient, piece of background, this church placed a high priority on caring for these widows and other needy people among them. We've already seen in the, the book of Acts how fundamental caring for the needy is in the biblical understanding of what it means to live a faithful, godly life. Luke Timothy Johnson writes in his commentary on Acts, he says, the laws of Torah, the Old Testament, gave special attention to the care of the needy. Failure to care for such poor folk bore a curse. Deuteronomy 29, 17. Cursed be he who prevents just, who perverts justice due to the, so, sorry, who prevents justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless and the widow. And then he goes on, a classic, uh, sorry, among the prophets, doing justice for widows was shorthand for covenant loyalty to God. Let me read that again. For the prophets, doing justice for widows was covenant was shorthand for covenant loyalty to God. A classic expression is given to this conviction in James 1.27. To neglect widows is a fundamental betrayal of covenant loyalty. And in the rabbinic tradition, doing justice, tzedakah, was spelled out in terms of organized community almsgiving. And so he continues, the allusion to daily distribution of food in Acts 6 corresponds to what we know of organized Jewish charity in local communities. Each community would offer a daily soup kitchen for transients and the destitute and a chest for meeting longer term needs, a chest of resources. So it's no surprise that we find the early church carrying out what the Old Testament, their scriptures taught, and what Jesus taught about the poor. They were putting substantial financial resources and effort toward the care and the support of those in need. So they were a community that was growing rapidly. They were diverse. They were Hellenistic and Hebraic. They were being impacted by the broader social dynamics of of the society, lots of needy widows, and they were committed to caring for those needs. And, And this is stretching them, and so pretty soon problems erupt. Right? This this totally makes sense. If you remember back the, the, the 12 apostles who, who lead the church, they're in charge at this point of caring for those who are needy in the church. Go back a few chapters. We saw earlier in Acts, people were selling their houses and their property, and they were putting the money at the feet of the apostles so that it could be distributed to those who were in need. Well, now we see there are complaints about the apostles not being fair in how they're doing the distributing. 
And, and the complaints, not surprisingly, fall out along the lines of, of ethnicity in the community. The, the apostles are, are all, all Hebraic Jews. But it's the Hellenistic Jews who complain, hey, you're favoring other Hebraic Jews. You're not being fair to us Hellenistic Jews. And, and um, the question the apostles face is, how, how should this be addressed? What are we going to do about this problem? How can it be handled so that it doesn't derail the, the progress and the growth and the health of this community? Well, let's see how the apostles handle it. And what lessons this has to teach us. We're going to look at six lessons. I'm going to spend most of the time on the first lesson. And then quickly go through the other five. So the first lesson we learn here is about ministry. What ministry is and what sort of ministry is important. And in this passage we learn that in the early Christian community. There were at least two kinds of ministry. Probably more. But there's two we see here. First there's the ministry of spreading God's word which was largely an outreach ministry, the way Luke tells the story. We've seen the apostles again and again proclaiming God's word in the temple to the Sanhedrin, and more and more people are coming to follow Jesus. And so Luke tells us again in verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Now, sure, the apostles were also teaching God's word to the believers, but Luke doesn't highlight this as much as he does the ministry of proclaiming the word to those who haven't heard it yet in Jerusalem. Then second, in addition to this uh, ministry of God's word, there's also the internal ministry of caring for the needs, the physical needs of God's people. The ministry of the word and the ministry of the table particularly toward these widows. Two ministries. Now, it's tempting to read the apostles' well-known statement, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables and to conclude that the ministry of the word is more important than the ministry of the table. And in fact, I read it this way for years. I understood this passage to teach that the apostles knew that the ministry of the word and prayer was more important. And so when some Hellenistic Jews complained about their widows, the apostles refused to get distracted from the more important thing. And so they let the church find someone else to care about those widows. Well, for several reasons, I've come to realize that I had misunderstood this passage. I've come to realize that this passage is actually upholding the importance of caring for those in need, not diminishing it. And let me give you three reasons that I changed my mind about this. First, I came to realize that the apostles take the the church's ministry to the needy widows very seriously. After all, they're in charge of it when the passage begins, as, as best we can tell. We've already seen that that scripture, both Old and New Testaments, is very strong and clear on the importance of helping those in need. And that the Jews and now the early Jewish Christians are living this way. They're being faithful in this way. It's just that the church was growing rapidly and there were um, uh, more than likely a lot of Hellenistic widows. And so the apostles became overwhelmed with the task and with all of their tasks. They needed to find a new, better way to handle all of their responsibilities as leaders of God's people. 
Notice when they're faced with this problem, the apostles didn't say what a lot of leaders might say today. They didn't say, come on, everyone, let's keep the big picture in mind. Under our leadership, the church is growing. The good news is going out. Many souls are being saved. And now we apostles have limited resources. We can't do everything. So just be grateful. We're focused on the more important things. They don't say that. No, they took the care of these widows very seriously. When the story begins, the apostles are overseeing this care themselves because that's part of what Christian ministry is. It's not just teaching or evangelizing. It's not only praying. It's also supervising the care of those in need. It's only when the needs become so great for the apostles, too big to handle by themselves, that they, once they recognize this, it's brought to their attention. They delegate this responsibility, but they never abandon it. Instead, they entrust it to other godly, capable leaders who can do do it better justice than they themselves are able to do. So second, I came to realize the quality of the seven people that the apostles sought to solve this problem. These are godly, spiritual leaders. They have a good reputation. They are full of wisdom, and they are full of the Holy Spirit. Added to this, did it ever surprise you that as the you continue reading the book of Acts, we don't hear about these seven taking care of widows, actually. Now, sure, they did do that, no doubt, but what Luke tells us about them, or at least the two most well-known of them, Stephen and Philip, is that they are also proclaiming God's word, defending the faith, even doing wondrous miracles like the apostles. In fact, Stephen is put to death, not because he's caring for widows, but because he's also boldly proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. And as as the story of Acts continues into the next section, where we see the gospel going out into Judea and Samaria, it will be the Hellenistic believers under the leadership of people like Philip and Stephen who become front and center in what God is doing, and it will be through them that God's word actually goes out to Samaria and Ethiopia and finally to the Gentiles. The point is that these seven leaders aren't just caring souls with administrative skills. They are also mature, courageous, spirit-filled leaders who are capable of the same sort of ministry as the apostles. That's the sort of people the apostles seek and that the church selects to do this important ministry of caring for the needs of poor widows. Caring for those in need is ministry. It's important ministry. The third thing I came to realize as I looked more closely at this passage is that, I just said it, serving those in need is just as much ministry as preaching God's word is. As you may know, the English verbs to serve and to minister are just two translations of the same Greek word. Dikai, should have looked it up. Dikaiao or something like that. Um, I know it just right off the top of my mind. I can't picture how to pronounce it. Um, So the two verbs, serve and minister, same Greek verb. Also the two nouns we translate minister and deacon are both The same Greek word meaning servant, dikaios. That one I know. (laughs) Um, In other words, to have a ministry is to be a servant. Let me say that again. To have a ministry is to be a servant. Jesus came as a servant, right? 
and he told his followers to become servants as well. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. We serve God by serving others. And so when the apostles in Acts 6 talk about the ministry of God's word, they're talking about service. And when they talk about waiting on tables, which is literally the Greek reads ministering at tables, they are talking about service again. There are two types of ministry, two types of service, at least two types mentioned in this passage. I think there are far more, but the two we see here, there is the ministry, the service of the word, and there is the ministry, the service of the table. Now, what this means is that it is unbiblical to talk about someone like me as a minister who has entered the ministry and not to talk about every other Christian in this way as well. Because the New Testament is clear. In Ephesians 4, for example, we are all ministers. We are all called to ministry. We are all servants called to serve. This is one of CBC's key values, right? Say to the person next to you, you are a minister. I think my kids think that's goofy the way they're smiling. But maybe not. Maybe they're enjoying it. The the question is not whether we're ministers or servants. The question is just what sort of service we're called to. How are we going to carry out our servanthood? How are you going to carry out your servanthood? Because, of course, we can't all do everything. We're not all good at everything. So we specialize according to the gifts and abilities God has given us and the sense of call we have from God about where to focus and, and according also to the needs of the situation. And that's what we see the apostles doing and organizing here. In this situation in Acts 6, there's too much ministry for just 12 guys to do. So more help is needed. Specialization was needed. And so the apostles, they felt that they should focus on the service of God's word. So that was not neglected. And the seven were appointed to make sure that the service of the table was not neglected either. The early believers valued both the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table. And they appointed godly leaders to oversee both so that neither would be neglected. How do we measure up today? You know, Ron Sider has written an interesting book called One-Sided Christianity. Just from the title, you see where that's going. He he talks about the church's historic focus um, all the way up through the 1800s on both proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and caring for the needs of the poor. And then he shows how these two ministries got split apart around the turn of the last century, around 1900. How liberal churches started pursuing what's often called the social gospel. They saw the kingdom of God. They came to see it predominantly in economic and social terms. And they began neglecting the spiritual core of it. They lost faith that that spiritual core was even true. Meanwhile, conservative churches reacted against this and held up the spiritual gospel as true. But in the process, they moved away from the ministry of the table for fear of being seen as too liberal. And it's only been in the last few decades that evangelicals have begun seeking to regain, however imperfectly, the historic balance between these two. So how about CBC? 
Which is more important to us? How do both? Amen. <laughs> how, how do we make sure the ministry of the table receives the, the kind of quality leadership and importance that the apostles give it in Acts 6? Because Acts teaches us that God's work flourishes when Christian leaders, plural, give their attention to the ministry of God's word and to prayer, and also God's work flourishes when other Christian leaders, plural, give their attention to the ministry of the table. So this is the first big lesson that that we learn from the problem that this church is facing and how they handle it. So uh, now let's very briefly look at five other lessons that we also learned. Don't worry, we're going to fly through these. Don't worry about grasping all of them. Just, you know, the important question is always, what's God saying to you this morning? Not, did I get all five? Um, So as we continue to see the apostles address and overcome this this problem, so that it doesn't sidetrack or stop the momentum of, of what God's doing, but instead catapults it to a whole new level. Let's see how the apostles give leadership to turn this problem into an opportunity. So second, the apostles don't ignore or deny or downplay problems or conflicts. They don't pretend that this problem isn't so bad or just ignore the conflict and hope it goes away. They don't procrastinate addressing it forever because they're too overwhelmed with other matters. They don't spiritualize it and say, hey, we have more important godly concerns, and so we can't pay attention to that. No, they take it seriously. They deal with this problem. Third, the apostles don't get defensive or blame or dismiss those who have a legitimate complaint. They take God's people seriously. The apostles don't write off the Hellenists as a bunch of whiners and grumblers. They don't chide them for being so selfish, but rather they respectfully engage them, gathering all the believers together, accepting their own shortcomings as leaders that let this problem arise. Fourth, the apostles involve those who point out the problem in the solution. Isn't that great? (laughs) They involve those who point out the problem in the solution. The apostles give the Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenists permission and empowerment to solve their own problem. They include them, giving them voice in the selection of new leaders who can address this problem. Interestingly, all seven of the people chosen to solve the problem have Greek names, not Hebrew names. They're likely large, now there were some Hebraic Jews who had Greek names, but likely, this, largely, this is a group of Hellenists we're going to take responsibility for solving this problem. Fifth, the the apostles are secure enough to give away power. They're not defensive. They're not trying to downplay the, the, the appearance that they aren't doing a good enough job. They're not controlling. They're not appointing their own like-minded subordinates to solve the problem. No, they give power away. They empower the Hellenists, the group that was complaining. They're sharing power. Even though it would be tempting for them as conservative Hebrews to look at the Hellenists as more influenced by the world and less faithful and knowledgeable of the ways of God, the apostles are not paternalistic like this. They don't say, we know better, we'll solve the problem for you. 
No, they say, you fix it. You know best. So here's the power. We bless you. Take care of it. We honor you. And then sixth, finally, they, uh, and related to all this, the apostles preserve unity rather than taking sides. They don't let it become an us versus them issue. But rather, they gather all God's people together. They include everyone in the solution. And as a result, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And as we'll see, a whole new opportunity opens up as these new leaders, these seven, all with Greek names, step up as leaders and pioneer God's mission in Judea and then Samaria. And we'll begin looking at that story next week. But now we're going to turn our attention in a couple minutes to communion. We're going to sing a song. Um, But we're, we're going to turn our attention to this table where we all gather around Jesus. Despite our diversity, we remember that he has made us one community and he's given us one mission. And so we are to share our bread with one another, as symbolically we will do here, but we need to do it in reality every day as well. Even as we continue to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, as this table reminds us to do.